Hi, I'm Olivia McCollins, and this is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty and staff, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. With spring underway and summer quickly approaching, the annual annoyance of mosquitoes returns. Even though we are working and learning indoors, we need to be reminded to protect ourselves from mosquitoes when we spend time outside. In part one of this episode, Catherine Hill, an entomologist in Purdue's College of Agriculture, talks about why we need mosquitoes, even though a lot of us would rather get rid of them. Then, in part two, we hear from Amanda Deering, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Food Sciences. Deering studies food safety, specifically how she works to make sure the fresh produce we buy is produced safely. But first, my conversation with Catherine Hill. As I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about how I view mosquitoes in my own life and how they're sometimes an annoyance. (laughs) But I was thinking about they're here for a reason. Why are mosquitoes here? What is their purpose? You are not the first person to ask me this question, Olivia. It's a very interesting question, and thank you for that introduction. Yes, I'm a professor of entomology at Purdue University, and I'm described as an entomologist, a medical entomologist, I guess you would say, which means that I, in my case, I work on mosquitoes and ticks, and I spend a lot of time trying to better understand their biology, but also looking for improved ways to control them and to disrupt the transmission of many of the diseases that they're capable of transmitting to humans and animals. It's a great question that you've asked, and it's a great way to kick off this interview because there are thousands of species of mosquitoes and only a small percentage of them, maybe less than 10%, are actually the ones that cause us concern in public health. So these are species of mosquitoes, just like you've described, that have an annoying bite or they're nuisance biters, or they're potentially vectors of diseases. And we know very little about the biology and ecology of many mosquito species on the planet. But we do know that they're really important in our ecosystems. They form a very large part of the biomass in many environments. The immature stages, the aquatic stages that many of your listeners will be familiar with, the little wriggling larvae and pupae, are very important for digesting organic matter and so in nutrient cycling in our ecosystems. Um, They're also an important food source for fish and, and other aquatic organisms, And then the adults, the ones that bite us uh, or cause irritation and and are nuisance biters, they're also an important food source for bats and birds and, and other animals. So I think it's fair to say that the mosquito is perhaps a little bit underappreciated and underloved. There's been a few species that are capable of transmitting diseases like malaria and dengue that have sort of earned a bad reputation for the rest of the bunch. One thing that I think is odd or kind of surprising is the fact that they can carry these diseases and they infect human beings, but yet they're able to survive. How do we explain that? 
it's also another really interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> um, and it's fascinating because, of course, we culture mosquitoes in the laboratory. And when you're working with strains of mosquitoes that you've brought into the laboratory from the field and you're trying to grow them, they're actually quite difficult to grow. And that begs the question, well, how are they so good at surviving in the environment? But they are. I mean, they've been evolving for for millennia and they are exquisitely adapted to the many different environments that they're capable of exploiting. They're capable of quickly exploiting water resources when they become available for reproduction. They have adapted to feed on humans and animals as a blood source so that they can then develop eggs for a production of another generation. They've adapted to live in extremely dry environments. So then it's also fascinating to wonder how is it that they acquire and transmit pathogens and parasites So mosquitoes acquire a pathogen or a parasite when they blood feed or take a blood meal by feeding on a vertebrate host that is infected with that particular organism. This is really fascinating stuff. The pathogen or parasite then has to go into the stomach or midgut of the mosquito and circulate then into the salivary glands or the spit glands of the mosquito and it has to replicate to really large numbers and be transmitted in the subsequent blood meal. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know actually is that it's just the female mosquito that transmits or is capable of transmitting parasites and pathogens because it's only the female that takes a blood meal because she's using that blood meal to produce eggs. The other really interesting fact here that I often discuss with folks is the fact that we know that when mosquitoes acquire parasites and pathogens, it has an impact on them. They get sick just like we do. And so there is a reduction or a fitness cost and a reduction in health of the mosquito. And what we understand from studying them is that there is a delicate balance going on between the pathogen and the mosquito. One of the goals in Hill's lab is to find new and safe ways to control mosquitoes. So we work with a number of different species of mosquitoes. We focus most of our efforts on mosquitoes that are capable of transmitting dengue and Zika. That's the yellow fever or Aedes aegypti mosquito. And we also work with another mosquito, Anopheles gambi, which is the mosquito that transmits uh, malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. And we are looking to find new and improved or smarter ways of controlling mosquitoes. And I'd just like to step back and provide some context here because for many decades we have achieved control of mosquitoes and the diseases that they transmit through the use of insecticides. So these are synthetic insecticidal chemistries that are toxic to the mosquito but also toxic to many other organisms as well. And there are environmental consequences of their use. The big concern that we have in in my field is that we are losing the ability to control mosquitoes because the widespread use of insecticides is leading to resistance in mosquito populations. And so there are many mosquito populations around the world that have become resistant to the insecticides that we're using And we're concerned that we may lose our ability to control mosquitoes and mosquito-borne diseases. So we know that in the next five to ten years, it's absolutely essential that we find new products and new control technologies. Our lab is very interested to do that 
by looking at ways, uh, products that might change, for instance, the behaviour of the mosquitoes so that that female is less interested in taking a blood meal and, and producing eggs and transmitting disease, or maybe products that disrupt mosquito mating and therefore lead to suppression of the population, or even finding a way that we could convert a vector species into a non-vector species. An important distinction here is that we want to find ways that control a mosquito, but we don't want to eliminate them completely from the environment mainly because we understand that they have important roles in the environment and we're very, very concerned about unintended consequences. So these are things that it might take us 20 or 30 or 40 years to fully understand the implications of. Hill offers a few practical solutions for us to protect ourselves from disease-carrying mosquitoes. Wear an EPA-approved repellent and reapply that as needed and follow the label directions for application. So, So taking care to use that as directed. You can also use permethrin-treated clothing and outdoor gear. Just take care to reduce the amount of exposed skin that you have. So maybe wear a shirt with long sleeves. You can wear pants and, and socks, for instance. And then stepping back a bit, there's some other things we can do. You know, mosquitoes, they love to exploit environments that we create. They're really, really good at living in urban environments. And we create breeding sites for them in the ways that we change the environment. They don't tend to fly very far from where they breed. And that means that we can breed mosquitoes in our backyards and communities. And so one really simple thing to do is to also eliminate mosquito breeding sites around your house and in your community. They like to breed in very, very small amounts of water. So these are tiny. I mean, think about a bottle cap. You can get tens of mosquitoes growing from a bottle cap that's filled with water. So clean up around the house. Check your gutters. Make sure that they're not blocked, that they're draining correctly. Turn over any containers like pots and pet dishes and make sure that they're not collecting water. And other things like filling in tyre ruts. I mean, it's really easy when we're mowing yards and the ground is soft to create a bit of a tyre rut and sometimes those can fill with water and we can just fill those in and eliminate that as a breeding site. So there's lots of things we can do. It does take a little bit of effort, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly well worth the reward. As Hill studies mosquitoes, she is constantly fascinated by the natural world. So there's a wonderful quote, and I think it's by Edward Wilson, who was on faculty at, at Harvard, and he said, it's the little things that rule the world. And that's how I feel about insects. When you see them under the microscope, they're really incredible. Mosquitoes in particular, they're just so beautiful. I know that they're really annoying to you (laughs) (laughs) at night when you're trying to go to sleep and you hear that sound and they cause annoying bites and, and some of them, yes, they do transmit diseases. But under the scope, they're just so beautiful. Some of them have these really beautiful scales on their wings. Some of them are a blue-green metallic colour. They have these very delicate legs and they're just so clever at what they do, being able to find us. They're so tiny, but they can find us so easily. They're just a fascination to me. Colorful open displays of fruits and vegetables at the grocery store are a constant reminder that our nation enjoys the most abundant and the safest food supply in the world. However, 
The current COVID-19 pandemic has raised many questions about the safety of fresh fruits and vegetables. Amanda Daring, an extension specialist in Purdue's Department of Food Sciences, offers good news. She says that all the current research indicates that the virus is not foodborne or food transmitted. So there's no evidence that anyone has gotten sick from fruits and vegetables, any food or any food packaging even for that matter. However, the problem lies in that any area that's a high touch point, so that meaning that people are touching it over and over and over again, is an area that the virus could be transmitted to and then somebody picking it up from that and then say touching their eyes, their nose, their mouth, whatever. And so think about the produce section at the grocery store. I mean, do you ever pick up the first apple that you (laughs) put that in your cart? Most of us don't, right? We touch a whole bunch before we decide to pick out the one we want. So if you do that and then the other 150 people do that, guess how many people has touched that same apple, right? So that's the only risk. And that's what we advise to just wash your fruits and vegetables when you bring them home and you just avoid that risk of getting sick. Deering says there are basic safety measures we should all take while we're in the store and later after we get home. Just try to limit what you touch in the store in general, right? You're just protecting yourself and you're protecting other people. And when you bring those fruits and vegetables home, just wash them following the FDA guidelines, which is just running under water and then drying with a paper towel or a towel. I think that's the best advice anyone can give. And, you know, and I've said to just avoid any of those areas that a lot of people are going to touch. Luckily, like the grocery stores I've been to haven't been very many lately, but they have provided sanitizing wipes, which is great. Sanitize that cart. That cart handle is going to be a high touch area. Think about bringing your own sanitizing wipes too. If the store doesn't provide it, you can have your own. That's just an extra precaution just to be on the safe side. Deering also says that consumers who are immune compromised and want to be as cautious as possible should consider buying prepackaged fruits and vegetables. They can also choose to eat only cooked fruits and vegetables until the threat of COVID-19 is passed. When she isn't talking about COVID-19 or working on research in her lab, Deering is meeting with Indiana farmers to help them understand and implement legal guidelines for harvest practices that protect our food from pathogens. As part of the Food Safety Modernization Act, one specific rule of that is called the Produce Safety Rule. And so this has really impacted how growers produce, harvest, hold fresh fruits and vegetables. And so now a lot of them are required to have this training. So we've been quite busy offering that. So that's part of what I do. And the other part is we still have a research program where we look at trying to understand some of these interactions that these human pathogenic bacteria have with fruits and vegetables. So currently we're trying to, and we've done some work in the past, but we're trying to understand what routes of contamination are actually the most probable or likely to cause contamination. So is it something if the seed gets contaminated, the leaf gets contaminated, the soil gets contaminated, trying to mimic some of these different contamination events and see how that results in that fruit or vegetable being contaminated at the end of the day at harvest. So I guess mostly what we try to do is just try to understand better how some of these things happen in the hopes that we're able to prevent them in the future. So saying knowledge is power, and that's kind of what we're doing. And 
in my position, then I'm able to transfer that knowledge that we gain directly to the growers. And that's what some of them say. That's the best part of their interaction working with Purdue Extension is that we have that ability to do that. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There you can route to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and leave a review. As always, boiler up. <laughs>